Today, I get to share with you about humility, which is a fascinating subject, a common misunderstood. And we're going to go to Philippians 2. And uh, I would encourage you to go, actually go to Philippians 2. Like, you've got a phone, you've got a Bible app. Maybe you brought a Bible made from wood, like a paper one still. Um, But we're going to go to Philippians 2. We're going to look at the word and we're going to go to a lot of verses. Humility is a huge theme and the opposite of it, which is pride. And it's pivotal to understanding the grace you've received in Christ Jesus. Uh, So with that, let's read Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there's a famous quote that is attributed to C.S. Lewis, but no one can really prove that it was him. But I like it, and I like him, so I'm going to say it was him. Here's the quote. It says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I've had several conversations in the last couple weeks as I've prepared for this message about humility. I just bring up the subject that I get to teach it, and the classic joke, the reaction that people have to the word humility is that you can't think you're good at things. Like, they start to make jokes about, oh, if you think you're good at something, you're not humble anymore. And my main message today, if you walk away with nothing else, is that that's actually not humility. You'll often hear people... Uh, public figures especially, they like to do this, where they'll talk themselves down. Like, oh, I'm not that good at things. And it sort of makes you feel like, oh, they're humble. Humility is not protecting your ego. Thinking of yourself less. It's not that you think you are good or that you think you are bad. It's that you're just not that worried about you. You're more worried about others, which is what this passage conveys. In fact, insecurity is a form of pride because it's a self-focused, image-conscious, am I good enough mentality. And I'm going to show you from the Bible, because otherwise, don't believe me. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 3. This is why the Bible apps are so fast. In the Exodus chapter 3, we hear the story of the burning bush. Perhaps you've seen it in film. You didn't actually see it. But Moses 
is out shepherding. He was raised in riches. He tried to start at age of 40 a revolution. It didn't go well. And so he fled. He actually tried to start a war to free the people of Israel. He killed an Egyptian. The people of Israel rejected him. It didn't work out. Pharaoh was going to have him killed. So he fled and left the country. And now he's in poverty and simplicity. Uh, and he's an 80-year-old man at the point of the burning bush. Probably thinking his life is wasted. He comes to this bush that's not burning, and yet it's a flame. And an angel speaks to him and tells him to go and set the people free. Represent God before the king and speak on God's behalf. And Moses displays the kind of insecurity that we all often struggle with. And I want you to notice not just his insecurity, but God's reaction to it. So I'm going to jump down to... I don't want to read the whole chapter. I want to jump to Moses' first question. God says in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we're going to skip down to verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Am I not the right person? But God doesn't get angry at his insecurity. God says, I will be with you. Which is also God's answer to your insecurity. Who am I? I will be with you. And then he explains. And we go on to Moses' second objection. Moses said to God in verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What am I going to say to them? So the people aren't going to believe me. Because all, your, all the people of Israel at this point are, right? There's no Moses yet that we understand. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no law. There's no tabernacle. There's no traditions. There's just a people group who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the stories of their life and family are all that you have. So it's basically the book of Genesis is all that exists at this point. And they don't have, they have this legend of a father, a son, a grandson who all met God and received from him a promise. And that's it. And now Moses, some 400 years later, is going to make a claim that that's the God who sent me. And so now he's first saying, who am I? And then he's saying, they're not going to believe me. And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And he gives them words to speak. Moses has another objection his next one was, what if they don't believe me? I am not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. He's going back and forth. I'm afraid of them. I'm not good enough. I'm afraid of them. I'm not good enough. And each time God gives him an answer, and you can summarize them all with, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And then he just says, send someone else. 
We're now in chapter 4. Moses said to the Lord, hold on, I'm skipping out. 13. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. So he sends Aaron with him. God didn't get angry at Moses' insecurity. He got angry at his disobedience. And that's going to be the theme here. So in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus, one of the Beatitudes Jesus speaks is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I was reading about humility, and the author said that the word meek, you know, when you're trying to understand the Bible, what scholars do is they actually look at other writings in the language of the Bible to understand the words the Bible uses to get a better context. So there was a Greek war document speaking of horses that uses the word meek, the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. And it speaks of a horse who's well-trained and ready for battle, that this horse would be obedient in the face of attack, in the face of danger. It's a meek horse. It doesn't translate well to our language. We wouldn't say that about someone who's meek, right? But it actually speaks to this idea of what it means to turn the other cheek. To turn the other cheek means I don't defend myself because I'm not here representing myself. It's not about me, which is what pride says you should focus on whether that pride is arrogance or insecurity. All right, so what, what's underneath it? Pride and anger are usually a cover for things. You know, when I work with kids, by the time the kid gets angry, I really saw this in elementary school, little kids, if a little kid is really angry, just generally, they've been through something really hard. And by the time they grow up into teenagers and adults, everybody's been through something hard. And so the potential for anger is much broader. But I began to see that anger was like a shield. It was like an armor that people put over the pain and the fear that they've experienced. And so when you want to focus on pride, pride is like that. It covers the insecurity. But we also create this sort of status where if I'm insecure, I'm somehow more holy and God likes me better. But if I'm arrogant, then God has rejected it rejected me or my attitude, right? But both are focused on you. I'm going to say this again and again. Your focus is on obedience to God and not on you. There is so much ministry going on around us focused on your identity in Christ, right? It seems like songs are written about this, books are written about this, lists of verses to study. And the Bible does have a lot to say about who you are in Christ. But one of the things it doesn't say is that you should focus on who you are in Christ. That you should focus on whether you're good enough or smart enough or if people like you. Rather, you should focus on obedience. Obeying God and doing what's right. So I want to touch briefly on this concept that I've mentioned in teachings past about the idea of three fears. 
The three fears are a fear of death and injury, a fear of rejection and isolation, and a fear of failure and uselessness. And they actually come in that order. So if, you are, if your life is in danger in the next couple seconds, you're not going to care about your career trajectory. Do you see what I'm saying? If your relationship is failing, that's also not going to come into your radar if there's a giant poisonous spider on your arm. So your body prioritizes different fears. The fact that you can worry about whether you're useful means that your relationships are roughly stable and you're able to not worry about rejection. And if you are able to worry about your relationships and whether you're lonely, it means that your life is not in danger of ending. But for most of history, for most of humanity's existence, it's not like what we experience here. For most of the story of people, the people of God, it's their lives in jeopardy, and yet they connect with each other. It's being rejected, and yet full of purpose. That in God, there's an answer to all three fears. And his answer is so powerful that you can be in danger, and many New Testament stories give this example, being in danger of being killed for the gospel, and yet full of the purpose and calling of God. Being rejected and slandered and persecuted by people that you look up to, people who should have been there for you, failing and betraying you, and yet loved by God. God wants to give an answer to your fear. If you don't get that answer from him, you will get it from some idol, some other form of sinful worship and dysfunction. And that's what the gospel is drawing you away from. When the Bible says, make Jesus both Lord and Christ, Christ means he's the chosen one of God who gives you access to the Father. But Lord means you do what he says. You know, even the word sin isn't a commonly used English word. Outside of the context of church, people don't use the word sin. I don't. I haven't heard people do it. But the biblical authors, for them, it wasn't that way. Sin was a sports metaphor for them. It came from archery and javelin, and it means to miss the target. That you had an aim, you knew what was right, and you missed. And the Bible talks about two types of sin. The one where you actually throw the javelin and miss the target, and the one where you just don't try, right? Both are failures um, in the eyes of God. So I don't, I try not to use the word sin, maybe in this context, because I assume you all will understand that the real word is dysfunction. It's not meant to be that way, and yet it is. It's not working out the way you hoped. You aimed for the target, but you missed. And I want you to think of it that way too, because one of the things the word dysfunction can help you with, the word sin, it's a, it's a loaded word. When you use it about someone else, it communicates that they're lesser, right? They're dirty in a moral and relational sense. It's a, it's a judging word. And the, Jesus teaches very clearly that you should not judge lest you be judged. You should not condemn because in the same way you condemn others, God will condemn you. 
This is why he says you have to forgive. Because to judge someone, it doesn't mean, by the way, judging, the world often will use this to mean don't tell someone that an action is wrong. That's not what judging is. Judging is to reject someone based on their action. Judging is to hold that anger against someone even though they've apologized. It's bitterness. It's anger. And it's, it's, uh, it's an emotional issue as much as it is like a decision to accept someone back. A lot of times you think you'll have made a decision to accept someone even though they've wronged you, but inside you haven't. Emotionally, you're still hard in your heart. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, judge not lest you be judged. Why do you do that? Why does your heart want revenge for the wrong you've suffered? Except that your ego, you felt like they didn't care. Don't they know how valuable I am? So if you can put down the question of your value, not answer it with like self-esteem platitudes. I hear a lot of teachers, this has sort of passed away more and more. But when I was growing up, teachers talked a lot about self-esteem and you had to tell kids that they were doing great. Everybody's smart, everybody's a winner. And it just makes the ego bigger. And you got a lot of kids who grew up being narcissists. Maybe you've seen them in the news and in the streets, maybe of local cities. And then you also got a lot of kids who distrusted what teachers and other authority figures had to say. Because if my teacher says she cares about me and that I'm smart, but I know I'm not smart, I know that I don't measure up to the kids in my class, which every kid knows. From the end of the first month of kindergarten, kids can roughly put themselves in order of who's smart and who's not. And they're accurate. They know. So your telling them they're smart means you're either ignorant, you don't know what you're talking about, or you're a liar. Both of those mean you can't be trusted in their life. So you have kids growing up, distrusting authority, but still thinking much of themselves and wanting their ego to be the center. And it's like pouring water down a bottomless pit. You'll never fill it up, and you'll run out of water. So when Jesus says, I'm going to put in you a spring, a spring that wells up and flows out of you, so that you don't have to constantly be filling yourself up, because God in you is going to pour out, and you'll be able to fill others up with the love that comes from him. If you can put down the question of value. It's easy to say. It's not easy to do. So I want to go through this passage, Philippians 2. He starts out by just talking about, I think, what he tried to establish, he being Paul. Paul is the author of this letter to the church in Philippi. So there's believers uh, meeting in homes and trying to figure out what this new religion is all about. They're not from Jerusalem or any of the areas where Jesus taught. So they're just trying to understand both the context of Jewish law and history, like what is this Old Testament, which they probably didn't call it Old Testament yet, right? And then how does it fit? And so Paul is saying, if you've accepted from me this ministry, then live out 
this way that I described. So listen at the beginning again. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, I've given you all these things. If you've gotten any of them, then please do this. Complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, full accord. Don't fight with one another. You get that? Come to agreement. Work out what's wrong. A couple weeks ago, I got to teach on forgiveness, and this feels fundamental, that the way you build relationship in a Christian context, the way you disciple someone, the way you support the church is by obeying Jesus' teaching about forgiveness, that if someone says they're sorry, you forgive them and you move forward. But they won't say they're sorry, and Jesus teaches a step before that, and that is if someone does you wrong, tell them they're wrong. The Bible calls it rebuking, which sounds awfully aggressive, especially in a context that we're in where awkwardness is the largest sin you can commit in a public setting, right? Rebuke, apologize, forgive. That's how you build a church. That's how you build a family. That's how you maintain your marriage. Raise your kids to do that. It's very simple. But you won't do it, and Paul gets into this, if you're not humble. You won't rebuke someone if you're not humble because they might reject you, and that's scary. And your insecurity prioritizes your own image over the needs of someone else, their need to be rebuked because they're in the wrong. That's why the Bible says parents who love their children discipline them. If you don't discipline your children when they need it, it's because you don't love your children. You love yourself instead because it's hard to get into conflict. Now, I would guess that most parents in here, and maybe listening elsewhere, find it far easier to rebuke their children than they do their coworker or their adult siblings or anyone else. Their, their spouse, well, spouse, maybe not. Maybe that's easier. I would encourage you to courageously and lovingly rebuke the people in your life if you care for them. If you care for them, you will rebuke them when they're wrong. If they care for you and agree that they're wrong, there's going to be some tension there. They're going to apologize, and then you're going to forgive. And you can do that process, Jesus says, 70 times a day. After 70 times, if you've rebuked your child 70 times in one day, then you can stop forgiving. But the next day it starts over. Good luck. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. All right, there's a metaphor here. I think Paul's referring to it. It's my favorite Bible story to refer to. Adam and Eve in the garden. She's reaching out for the fruit. She's grasping this idea, the serpent said, that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. And Paul says, Jesus didn't take the fruit. He didn't strive to be like God. He didn't check to see, am I good? Am I bad? Am I okay? He just obeyed. You just hear the word of God and you obey. 
Let God's plan be enough. Trusting God, which is what faith is. Faith and trust are the same. And watch what happens. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is the reason? What is the reason? What is the motivation? Maybe that's the right word. It's not to prove that you love God or to maybe finally confirm that nagging sense that God isn't there and he doesn't love you. Jesus trusted God and said, if I don't exalt myself, God will exalt me. My reward is from him. My investment is in heaven. It's not here. It's not in my reputation here, whether I'm measuring up to whatever thing I pursue, right? We all have these different pursuits that we wish we were better at. We wish we had a little less, you know, insulation in the middle. We wish we were a better parent or spouse or work or there's lots of different things that we pursue. And in each of those pursuits, we have this image of what it would be like if we got there. If only we were that way. We've made a little God and we're grasping to try to be like him. Humility is to let that go. To do good work. And that's enough. I had someone once, he was trying to argue against a mentality of proving your value to God, a works mentality, sometimes we say. And so he said, we're human beings, not human doings. And it, you know, he had that sense of, that was a pretty clever one. I don't think he made it up. I think he found it from somewhere else, right? Seems like something you'd get on the internet with a picture of nature behind it or something. I think it's exactly opposite. I think that if you focus on who you are and whether you're good enough, and whether you measure up, you'll just be grasping for fruit that will spoil. And what God wants to do is train you like that war horse to be obedient in the face of all kinds of fear, whether it's physical danger, relationships falling apart, humiliation, slander, career loss, in all those things. And I would say, as I watch closely our culture around us, prepare yourselves for those things, that if you are going to say that you are a believer in Jesus, the risks of those things happening is increasing. It's coming quickly. And yet, like that horse in battle, obey. Looking to the commands of your master, and not to the things going on all around you. And in so doing, you will be humble. And that is God's command. In fact, his command is to humble yourself. He promises to do lots of things for you. But this one, you do. You choose. All right, I'm going to read one more passage from Luke 17. If you have a Bible, I want you to go there. Luke 17, verse 5. Jesus does an interesting thing here. Faith is so often the centerpiece of what we think is missing. If only we had more faith, 
then the stories of the Bible would be the stories of our life. I've often found myself thinking this. Jesus seems to disagree in this passage, and I, I want to explore it a little bit. Luke 17, 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It just takes a little. Don't focus so much on how much faith you need. You don't need that much. But look at the next verse. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline at the table. But would he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer is no. So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, We've only done what was our duty. Jesus' answer to your desire for more faith, thinking that faith will activate all these promises and a supernatural experience of God's resurrection power, Jesus says it just takes a little. The missing ingredient isn't faith. It's humility. It's obedience. Because God gives his grace to the humble. He gives it without limit. But he will oppose the proud. He will oppose your efforts. He will oppose your desires. He will come. Your life will be not good. Not good. There's Bible stories about people who pursue pride and nations. Both your insecurity and your ego need to be put down. Choose obedience instead. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you show us the way. Thank you that you're good and that your goodness, like a spring of living water, can flow out of us if we'll just obey you, if we'll just trust you, that you will exalt us in due time, that you are the one whose approval we should pursue because you love us so greatly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.